sermon. I preached last week, and I hope all of you know this, um, but just in case you don't, I do believe that God is the ultimate author of all of the scriptures. Uh, they have all the scriptures have human authors, but those uh, human authors were divinely inspired when they wrote uh, in such a way that the scriptures that they wrote were both their words and God the Holy Spirit's words, identically the same. You can say God wrote it, you can say uh, Paul wrote it, or Moses wrote it, or the chronicler wrote it. Um, but at the same time I'm saying that, if I don't always say, and I didn't last week very much, which I should have more often, that this is the Holy Spirit who is doing speaking this just as much as it is the chronicler. Uh, I want you to know that that's what I mean, and if I don't, if I fail to say that sometimes, don't think I don't believe it, and don't believe otherwise yourself, that it's somehow just a mere man who's making these decisions. So, for example, when the chronicler, I, I mentioned that the chronicler borrows heavily from the author of Kings, whom we don't know either. Kings was written about 150, uh, 100 to 150 years prior to chronicler, uh, the Chronicles, probably. And they were both one book originally in the Hebrew Bible. Um, that when I say the the chronicler uh, selected certain things but omitted certain things, so too did the Holy Spirit. When I say that, and you need to know that, you need to understand that I mean that, even if I don't always say it. Um, so the scriptures are fully inspired by God, and both the human author and the divine author are saying whatever is said in there all the time. So. I just wanted to, uh, I was, I was, it was pointed out to me uh, last week that uh, I talked about a lot about the chronicler, but I didn't say too much about the Holy Spirit making those decisions, and that was an oversight on my part. So I want you to know that. Okay, to our text. First, Second Chronicles, chapter 5, the entire chapter, which consists of 14 verses. This is the word of God. He is the author, as is somebody who we call the chronicler, Possibly Ezra, probably he wrote, Ezra might have written the, the tail end of it, actually, if, uh, more than likely he did, but the rest of it, we don't know. It's one or more authors, human authors, but one divine author, all of whom are speaking uh, uh, without error. So, chapter 5, the word of the Lord. I'm going to start, actually, in verse uh, 2. Actually, I'll read verse 1, but the text starts in verse 2. Verse 1. Thus, all the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and all the utensils, and put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast, that is, in the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the holy of holies under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary. Wait, this could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen outside. And they were there, they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of Egypt. 
And when the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were, pre- who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, when cymbals and harps, with cymbals and harps and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison, when the trumpeteers and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voices, excuse me, their voice accompanied with trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have built thee a lofty house and a place for thy dwelling forever. Amen. We'll stop there. That was a long sentence, wasn't it? I actually intended to come up here and read the ESV or the Net Bible, and I forgot to grab it before I came up, so you had to hear the unwieldy New American Standard translation. Sorry. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of hearing from you, our God, the God who is, the only God, the true and the living God, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and our Father in heaven. We thank you that we have this glorious privilege of having a relationship with you through your Son. We thank you that you care for us, you love us dearly, and you want what's best for us because it pleases you to lavish graciously your blessings upon us. And we thank you that you care to make us, you care for us so much that you wish to make us more like our Savior, the God-man, Jesus. And we thank you that you provide means by which to sanctify us um, and also save the uh, the unconverted and the principal means, Lord, is the word read and even more particularly preached. Would you please be in the preaching of the word now for our good, but most of all, that you might be glorified through a, a our further sanctification as a result of this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> kids, have you ever... Um, how many of you kids have a dog? Raise your hands if you have a dog. Okay, several of you have dogs. Okay. Well, for those of you that have dogs, you probably don't need to uh, uh, pretend here, but for those of you that don't have a dog, just keep this, pretend that this, you have a dog, okay, for a moment. Uh, so let's say you all have a dog, and you've all decided that your dog, you, got, you, you just got a new dog, and maybe this actually happened to you when those of you that have the dog uh, got your dog. You needed a, a dog house for the dog to live in. And so maybe you, along with your dad or your mom, build a dog house for your dog. Dogs need protection from the weather, right? Um, and so you decide to build a doghouse. And maybe, you, like I said, maybe you've actually done this with your one of your parents. Wouldn't it be really strange, children, if you build a house for your dog and then your dog never moves into his house? The house just sits there, but the dog never goes into the house. You never you never put the house in with the dog so the dog can go in the dog house. Wouldn't that be strange? Be kind of weird, wouldn't it? To build a house for a dog and then the dog doesn't occupy the house. It's strange. Um, Miss Natalie and myself, we built 
or had built, actually. But uh, we kind of built it because we, we paid the guy to build it for us. Uh, we built our house some 19 years ago. 19 years ago, yeah. We built our house 19 years ago uh, so that we could live in that house. Now, wouldn't it have been really weird if we built that house for ourselves and then never moved in? Right? That'd be weird. That'd be strange. If somebody builds a house for themselves or has a house built for themselves, it's appropriate that they live in the house, right? Yeah. This passage, folks, children, and the rest of you folks too, this passage is about God moving into his house that he had built. He built it, but he built it through the hands of Solomon and all the workmen that Solomon commissioned to build the house. But God built a house for himself. And today, in this passage, we see God moving into his house, which was called the temple in Jerusalem. And this passage is a very important passage. Not only for the original readers that the chronicler was writing to, which were the post-exilic returnees from Babylon, the Jews who came back from Babylon, back to the Promised Land to live uh, around uh, probably in the 400s B.C. So it's a, it was very important to them that they hear this message about what happened some six, five or 600 years earlier in Solomon's day because it was relevant for what was going on in their day. But it's also very important for us today, post-resurrection of Jesus and ascension of Jesus. And we'll get into that uh, toward the end of the sermon. The Holy Spirit... Uh, the Holy Spirits and the Chroniclers, uh, to my point a few moments ago, my d- disclaimer, their account of Solomon's reign, the first king after David, their account of Solomon's reign spans uh, a full nine chapters in Second Chronicles. The first nine chapters are devoted just to Solomon and his exploits and his uh, dealings uh, with the nation and with God. At the heart of this nine-chapter account of Solomon's reign lies the construction of the Jewish temple, of the Jerusalem temple, I should say. And at the heart of the discussion of the, uh, the, 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 the temple's construction is the dedication of the Jerusalem temple, which is described in chapter 5, verse 2, where we're starting today, um, and goes all the way through chapter 7, verse 10. That's the dedication or the, the worship service uh, when God comes to fill the tabernacle, the, excuse me, the temple, uh, and the worship that surrounds that event. It, it, it goes all the way to chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, so my point is, and saying this, is that over the next few Lord's Days, we are going to be looking at this extraordinarily important event in the history of Israel, um, which is the dedication of the temple by God showing up uh, in the form of the glory cloud at the temple. And then we're going to draw lessons from this most important of events in Israel's history. Two points we're going to look at uh, that summarize what takes place in these 14 verses. First, the Ark of... We're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant's relocation to God, to Solomon's temple. And then we're going to more briefly look at the Lord of the Covenant's relocation to Solomon's temple. So first the relocation of the ark, and then the relocation of God himself. So first the ark. The ark of the covenant. Where had the ark of the covenant been prior to this point? Well, there were a number of years, uh, a number of years earlier from this point in time, David, Solomon's father, excuse me, David had brought the Ark of the Covenant up from a place called uh, Kiriat-Jerim. A guy named Obed-Edom lived there in Kiriat-Jerim. And David had transported the Ark that was had been at that location up to the city of David, 
which, by the way, is a borough, I'm going to call it, a district or a borough of the larger city of Jerusalem. So a sub-portion of the city of Jerusalem uh, was called the city of David. Okay, but uh, the city of David grew and became Jerusalem later on. Uh, it, be, it expanded beyond the what was the originally the city of David. So um, David himself, the king, back in his day, brings the ark up to the city of David, and he placed that ark in a tent, which is not the tent of meeting, not the tabernacle, but a different tent, uh, and uh, the. But it was not the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that Moses had constructed. That tent, the tent of meeting, had been residing at a place called Gibeon, along with the bronze altar of burnt offering. Or it's, uh, as Mr. Morales says, it's actually better translated as the ascension offering. But the point is, the bronze altar and the, uh, the tabernacle were located at Gibeon at this point in time prior to this, whereas the ark uh, was located in the city of David, down the hill from the Temple Mount. Okay, So, on this occasion that we're reading of here in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, both the ark of... Oh, let me, let me say something else. There's one other thing I wanted to say. So, originally, the tent of meeting had been in Gibeon along with the bronze altar. But somewhere along the line, after David had uh, done what he did, somewhere along the line the tent of meeting itself was moved from Gibeon to the city of David. So now, the ark and the tent of meeting, the old tabernacle, are in the city of David. So, on this occasion, both of those, both of those uh, things, the ark and the tent of meeting and the tent's furnishings, are brought up from the city of David to the temple mount and are placed inside the temple. In the case of the ark, it's placed in the Holy of Holies. In the case of the furnishings of the ark, uh, furnishings of the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself, which would have been folded up because it was a tent, it would have gone in the storage uh, rooms, which were attached to the outside of the the temple. Boy, I'm having a rough time here. Hopefully you're following. So that's where the ark had been. It had been down in the uh, city of David. Well, the ark uh, is relocated... uh, by Solomon's uh, appointment or command, and it's relocated, its relocation is timed to coincide with a feast that occurs in the seventh month. We read that in verse 4, 3 rather. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast, that is, in the seventh month. That feast that the chronicler is referring to there is the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the great... uh, uh, feasts that Jews were required to come up to Jerusalem for, and it was celebrated on the 15th day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. Now, the book of Kings, that the chronicler depends heavily upon, the book, the book, of, the book of Kings informs us that the temple was actually fully completed in the eighth month, not the seventh month. It was fully completed in the eighth month. So, in all likelihood, the way we reconcile this is we don't do what the German liberals did and go, ah, God's word is, uh, the Bible is not divinely inspired. That's how the, the liberals handle it. Uh, but they're, they're, they're godless. Uh, what probably explains it is, in all likelihood, the dedication of the temple that we are reading about here in the worship service that surrounded the bringing of the ark up, which is the dedication of the temple, because God comes to the temple. Uh, the dedication of the temple... Here, in this passage, took place about a month before the final touches were placed on the, and made, and completed on the, the temple. So the temple was virtually done when this event took place, but the final touches were put on it within the next month. And then finally it was absolutely finished about a month hence from this point in time. I know that's a little bit detailed and getting into the weeds a little bit, but I want you to understand what's going on here in case you happen to look at Kings and go, wait, the king says the eighth month, and Chronicles says the seventh month. That's the explanation, almost certainly. Um, and by the way, uh, probably uh, the reason that this dedicatory worship service and the bringing of the ark up to the temple takes place 
uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, why Solomon wanted it to be so, was because that's when a large number of Jews were already in Jerusalem for the feast. So more people could attend, you see. So the Ark is relocated from the city of David to the Temple Mount. Why is it relocated? What's, what's the reason? Well, remember, recall, it was upon the mercy seat atop the ark that Yahweh had indicated to Moses back in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, that his divine presence would uniquely dwell on earth between the cherry beam on the mercy seat above the ark that had the, uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments inside of it. God said, I'm going to dwell there in a unique way. You're going to call on me there, Moses. He says that back in that text. Well, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was the one and only place on earth that God had designated for his name to dwell. His name, by the way, is another way of saying his special divine presence. Uh, it also, by the way, refers to his divine power. When, when the Old Testament writers would speak of his name, New Testament as well, speak of his name was also represented his divine power, power which was accessible to his covenant people when they called upon that name or God in, in his name in prayer. But the fact that the Temple Mount was uh, in Jerusalem was the place that God had designated, I want, I'm going to take you to two places. First go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. And then we're going to go over to 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, after that. But first, Deuteronomy. And this is one of several verses that makes this point, by the way. Uh, in fact, there are three other places in Deuteronomy, chapter 12, that make the point, but I'm not going to read it because one verse will do. Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verse 5. Uh, this is God, of course, uh, speaking. Um, and he... Uh, says in verse 5, You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. He's talking to all of Israel now. Okay, So he says there's a place that the Lord is going to choose from among your tribes to establish, here it is, his name, his divine presence, his power, that, uh, to be called upon, where he's to be called upon, and there you are going to come, to that place. Where is the place? Well, it's designated by the Lord, finally, to David. First Chronicles, chapter 21. Turn there. Starting in verse 28, and we're going to read through chapter 22, verse 5. It's not very long. It's only about eight verses here. But this is when the, the place that God spoke of back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, um, this is when he designates the place. Starting in uh, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 28. At that time, when David, and by the way, this is after David had sinned um, by numbering Israel at the, at the uh, uh, suggestion of Satan. Uh, chapter uh, verse one of uh, chapter twenty one speaks of that, uh, and God uh, said, "You you have done evil. You've committed iniquity, and there's going to be a price for this. A pestilence. Uh, he chose the pestilence. Recall, he said, I'd rather fall into the hands of the living God.' And uh, uh, in verse thirteen, and God sent a pestilence upon Jerusalem, the city. Uh, and recall, the angel of the Lord was there, and uh, with his sword drawn." Anyway, so verse 28, at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there. For the, for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. In other words, when David, who was in Jerusalem, uh, uh, at the place of Ornan the Jebusite, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He's now talking about the tabernacle. He says, it's up in Gibeon still. But then verse 30, but David could not go, but David could not go before it to inquire of God before the tabernacle, for he was terrified by the sword 
of the angel of the Lord. And then we read this in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then David said, This, meaning the place I'm standing on, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And then, so that's what he says, and then subsequently David gives orders, verse 2, David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone setters to hew out stones to build the house of God, and to build it on that location. David wanted to, and so he sets out to begin, and you recall later on, Nathan says, no, God doesn't want you to build a house. Your son's going to build that house. But David's intent on it because he realizes this is where God wants that place where he's to be worshipped to be, on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, in the city of Jabus, which is Jerusalem. Okay? So, this is why God's um, ark, where the ark, where God dwells in a unique way above it, on the mercy seat, this is why God wishes to relocate the ark from down the hill on the city of David to the Temple Mount, which was Ornan, the Jebusite's uh, threshing floor was there, and that was also Mount Moriah, where David, uh, where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. And it's to be moved, because God wants it up here on the Temple Mount. Well, the relocation of the ark is accompanied by great celebratory national worship by the entire nation. Why is worship why does worship take place? And by the way, it's taking place all the way along the uh, the route from the uh, uh, similar to the way uh, David, uh, when David transported the ark, uh, worship was taking place uh, as it was being brought up to the city of David in his day, all the way along the, uh, I'll call it the parade route. That's not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. The, the route that the ark takes. And, the, and all this sacrificing and all this jubilation is all, you know, both sides of the road are lined with people, you, you know, who, who knows how, how thick, deep. Um, and uh, and so this relocation, why is it an uh, it's it's an act of worship in itself? You see, because they're really re- relocating the throne of God at God's behest. Uh, this is all about God, and so obviously this is all about must you know it's all about worshiping God because God is this is God's uh, event, if you will. When God is to be magnified because of what he's, what he's doing. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So both the transportation of the ark to the temple mount and to the temple and the corporate worship that is, accompanies this event are orchestrated by Solomon, Israel's king. Um, Israel's tribal leaders, we learn there uh, in, the, in our text, uh, play a leading role in this worship of the Lord along the the uh, transportation route. The chronicler identifies those who participated in this celebration of uh, the ark's relocation as, in verse 3, all the men of Israel. This is the uh, chronicler and the Holy Spirit's means of uh, indicating that the people that were present represented the entire nation. All 12 tribes were represented there. uh, All of Israel, if you will was there for that event. And again, the celebration was jubilant celebration. I won't reread all that we, but all the trumpets and the singing and the, and the, uh, uh, ejaculatory praise, it's all, it's all, you know, it's just, it's a wild event. A glorious event, I should say wild, it's a poor choice of words. It's jubilant. Because, why? Why is it, why, why the jubilation? Because God was renewing his pledge to be specially present among his covenant people. He had given that pledge earlier on, and and this is a renewal of that pledge, the transportation of the ark up to the house that God had indicated he wished built by Solomon for him to dwell in. And now his throne is moving up to that house. And it's a renewal. God is renewing, in effect, his pledge to the people of Israel. I will remain among you in a blessed way, 
Now, we New Testament believers have even greater cause for rejoicing than even our Old Testament uh, brethren did. Why? Because we don't have to look at an ark coming to a, a uh, building, coming into a building to find our assurance that God is with us because God dwells within us personally. In a, in a way that he didn't dwell, he did work in the hearts of Old Testament saints for sure. They weren't regenerated otherwise. But he dwells in us in a way kind of like he dwelt just periodically in the prophets when he came upon the prophets. That's how the Holy Spirit is with the New Testament believer at all times. And so we have God residing within us, and we are described as a temple in a number of places by Paul and Peter. And so it is even a more intimate, if you will, pledge because of the intimate presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead within us. And so we can look at this text and also be assured of God's continuing presence with us, gracious presence with us uh, in the New Testament age. The worship that uh, was rendered on this occasion, uh, some 970 years before Jesus was born or thereabouts, this um, this uh, worship was conducted in a manner prescribed by God under the Mosaic Covenant administration. So a number of types and shadows uh, and figures that God had required in his worship uh, in the Old Testament age under the Mosaic Covenant uh, at that point in redemptive history are used and utilized to worship God on this occasion. So things such as the ark. We don't have an ark anymore. The temple. We don't have a temple anymore, a physical structure that we have to go to. The innumerable sacrifices. We certainly don't have those anymore, right? The priests. I am not a priest. There are no priests, regardless of what some people might say in some uh, uh, churches these days. There are no priests today. There's only one priest, and he is our high priest. Uh, but back in the old uh, covenant, the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace, these types and shadows were part and parcel of their worship, and God wanted it that way. Well, all of those components, we'll call them, of Old Testament worship have been done away with in the New Testament age on account of the fact that the reality whom they foreshadowed, notice whom, the Messiah, has come and has accomplished his redemptive work. So the shadows are no longer needful, as we you uh, hear pretty regularly from me in this uh, pulpit and elsewhere. But that's the ark. That's the worship that was rendered by uh, our, our our Old Testament brethren in that day. Notice it was the Levitical priests or the Levites who transported the ark. Uh, verses uh, four and five. Then all the elders uh, came of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And again, verse 7 makes a similar point. Uh, They brought the uh, ark into the Holy of Holies as well. The Levitical priests did. And they carried it. So they, they were the ones that were carrying it all the way from the city of David, all the way up to the temple and into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. The Levites were. And this was in accordance with the instructions that Yahweh had given in the law, regarding how the ark was to be transported. We'll look at that real briefly over in Numbers chapter 4, verse 4. We read this. God gave these instructions, verses 4 through 6 of Numbers 4. Numbers 4, 4. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath, and he was, by the way, uh, one of the one of the Le- Levitical tribes, Kohath, Merari, and I just drew a blank on the other one. Anyway, there are three um, who were descendants of Levi. Uh, this is this is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons, so the high priests, in other words, high priestly line, shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a piece of cloth, excuse me, a cloth of pure gold and shall insert its poles. 
and then, let's see, verse, jump down to verse 15. <clears throat> and when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out after the sons of Kohath, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they may not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath, the Levitical priests, are to carry. Nobody else touches it or they die. Those were the instructions. Solomon wisely has Levitical priests carrying the ark to its new resting place. And this was essential, was it not, that they do it that way in order to avoid a repeat of what had happened earlier, uh, some ge- a generation or so earlier, the first time, because there were two attempts, when David tried to bring the ark up to the city of David. You recall what happened. The ark was being transported on a cart drawn by oxen. Uh, and uh, rather than by Levites. And Uzzah, uh, when the, uh, the, the cart jostled the ark and the ark looked like it was going to fall off the, car, uh, the, uh, the cart, presumably, uh, Uzzah thought he would give God a hand and put his hand out to touch the ark and he was struck dead. Because it was irreverent to touch God's throne by him. And the Levites, by the way, had acacia poles that were threaded uh, through rings uh, on the four corners of the ark, and they carried them presumably on their shoulders. I'm not sure, actually. They might have carried them down here. Uh, but uh, they carried them also at a distance from the ark, not touching the ark, but touching the poles that were holding the ark. So the lesson, of course, that we are to learn from their right... Uh, uh, transportation of the ark here on this occasion is uh, versus the wrong occasion when uh, uh, Uzzah did his thing is that God insists uh, that we only worship him in accordance with his directives which is another way of saying the regulative principle of worship is how we should worship him and we should not be uh, making up things uh, in our worship of God uh, because we like them it's about him it's not about us uh, then it is, we, we read in verses 7 through 9, just quickly, a description of the uh, inner sanctuary. I'll just read it to you and not comment on it. Starting in verse 7, Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the Holy of Holies under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles of the Ark could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. And they were there, uh, they are there to this day. Um, so there's the description of the uh, inner sanctuary of the Ark. But let's talk uh, about the significance of it. What's the significance of the contents of the ark? Look at verse 10. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, meaning at Sinai, which the Lord may, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And that, those stones are in this ark that has just been transported from the city of David to the Temple Mount. That, uh, that um, summary of the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses at the giving of the Mosaic Covenant administration, we'll call it that. Uh, what's the significance of the fact that the Ten Commandments uh, of the Mosaic uh, Covenant are found therein? Well, it's to accentuate the continuity, you see, between the Mosaic and the Davidic Covenants. They're a piece, if you will. And so too are the, it's also to accentuate the continuity of the structures. The, the tabernacle, which was made in, uh, the wilderness, had contained the ark for a long time. Now, the temple is going to contain that ark. And there's a continuity, uh, between those two structures. One, of course, is much more permanent than the, than the previous one. But, uh, it points to the, co- uh, the, <coughs> the continuity of the structures. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hold on. <clears throat> the structures themselves. 
by the way, the continuity between the two covenant administrations <clears throat> is also further highlighted by the relocation of the tent of meeting that again was now also in <clears throat> uh, the city of David to the temple on this occasion as well. So there's continuity between the covenant administrations, the, uh, the Mosaic and the Davidic. <clears throat> by the way, <clears throat> This evident continuity between the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants is why we Presbyterians insist that they are different administrations of one underlying gracious covenant. The Davidic and the Mosaic uh, covenant administrations. And by the way, there is similar evident continuity between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Covenant administrations, Leviticus 26, verses 40 to 45, and Psalm 105, verses 5 through 15, points to the continuity between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic. There's also similar evident continuity between the Abrahamic and the Davidic. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 18 and 19, and Jeremiah 33, verses 25 and 26. And there is similar evident continuity between the Mosaic and the New in Second Chronicles Excuse me, Second Corinthians, New Testament, chapter six, verse sixteen. That's why we call them administrations of the one covenant of grace. Sometimes we shorthand it the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. They're not, they're essentially the same covenant. Okay. Briefly, the second point. First point is that uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant's relocation to the Solomon's to Solomon's Temple. Now we were in close. We're going to look at the Lord of the Covenant's relocation to the to Solomon's Temple, which we read of in verses thirteen and following. There. Well, in one sense, in one in what sense am I saying that Yahweh Himself relocated? Of course, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. I'm not denying that in any way, shape, or form. But there is a sense in which his localized, visible manifestation of his presence, that was relocated, you see. And we read there, the end of verse 13, uh, Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. You see, this... Glory that is spoken of there is none other, and the cloud is none other than the, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory, uh, that appeared to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. We don't have time to look at it, but if you want to look at that passage later, Exodus 20, verse 21. Now, in some passages, such as Exodus 20, 21, Moses characterizes the appearance of the glory cloud as fiery. But then there are other places where... Um, the text, uh, Moses describes it as dark. It's described both ways. So apparently it was perhaps dark on the bottom uh, and fiery on top. We're not, you know, it's, it's just a guess. We don't, we don't know. But the point is, it represented God's presence in a unique way. It's a theophany of God. A visible manifestation of his presence. And that visible presence of God so filled the tabernacle of the temple on this occasion that the priests who normally did their thing, their duties in the tabernacle and the temple rather, were not able to stand and be in that building and had to leave because of the um, the overwhelming whatever it was of God's presence was there. And so God, if you will, is relocating this visible manifestation of himself through this procession to the temple itself. Why? Why is he relocating? The answer is obvious. As I mentioned earlier, the mercy seat on the ark was Yahweh's earthly throne. And since his throne was moving in accordance with his own expressed will through Moses, it was his intention... uh, to move with it, with his throne. The ark moved, he moved. What's the significance of the ark and the Lord's relocation to the Solomonic 
temple for the people in Solomon's day. What's the significance of it, first of all, for them? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol and a pledge, again, of his presence with them. So by visibly filling the temple now with his glory uh, in a visible way, God was reassuring the faithful uh, Jewish believer that he was a God who was indeed had been reconciled to him, that faithful Jewish believer, and that he could and would enjoy intimate communion with God as he worshipped God at that location in Jerusalem. We don't have to go to that location in Jerusalem anymore, folks. Never again, actually. Our dispensational friends disagree with us, but um, I'm pretty confident we don't have to go there again to find God or Jesus. The Spirit of Christ within us provides the reassurance that the glory cloud provided to the saints in that day, but only to the Christian, only to the person who is trusting in Jesus alone as his Savior, Savior from hell, and as his King, the one who governs and is in charge of his or her life. Um, you are not a Christian if you don't have Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you're, trust, you're not trusting in him only to make you right with God. But if you do have Christ that way or trusting him, then the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, dwells within you and provides you with the assurance that God is your friend, that you've been reconciled to him. Um, what? Let's In closing, let's talk about what the arrival of the glory cloud in the most holy place foreshadowed. So now we're talking about future from Solomon's day. What did it foreshadow? The arrival of the ark and the glory cloud. Well, first, it foreshadowed Jesus, God the Son's appearances at the temple, the Jerusalem temple in his day when he was walking upon the earth. It foreshadowed that. This event did. Secondly, it foreshadowed Jesus' own divine nature's union with his human nature, specifically the body of his human nature, which Jesus identified as the temple of God over in uh, that well-known passage in John chapter 2. I'll read it, verses 19 through 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple. He's referring to his own body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It, it took forty years, me, 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So the union of the divine son with our humanity in the person of the God-man, Jesus, is also foreshadowed here in this text as God comes and fills the temple. The glory cloud fills the temple. Also, Jesus' own passage through the veil and entrance into the heavenly temple uh, and its holy of holies uh, is also prefigured here. Um, he entered, recall, uh, the right, in fact, we'll turn to it, the right, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of the Hebrews speaks of this. He says in verses 19 and 20, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus, who entered within the veil, has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so, this event here in Solomon days foreshadows that. Jesus' entrance into the heavenly holy of holies, carrying his sacrifice of himself on our behalf that we might be made acceptable to God and might be brought into heaven ourselves. Uh, he is the fore, forerunner of our entrance into heaven because he has gone before us. And then finally, the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, um, his filling of the New Testament church uh, is also foreshadowed by the entrance of the glory cloud, uh, the coming of the glory cloud into the Solomonic temple. Paul speaks of the uh, church as the temple of God in Ephesians, that well-known passage, Ephesians chapter 2, where he says in verse 21, 
I'll start in verse 20. Actually, I'll start verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the Spirit's uh, filling of the New Testament church at Pentecost and his continued filling of us uh, to this day is also foreshadowed in the event that we are reading about here in Second Chronicles chapter 5. So, when you read these passages, these are the things you see you need to be thinking about. Not just about some big box up in Jerusalem on top of a hill uh, with a little box being brought into it. But it bespeaks much more than just what this event was by itself. It talks about your salvation, about God's reconciliation with you, about his filling of you, about the fact that he will never ever leave you or forsake you, and he will bring you safely uh, through Jesus' entrance into the most holy place. He will bring you safely into his presence uh, assuredly one day sooner or later as well. Praise God for his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these passages, uh, this passage rather, and the passages we've looked at in addition to it. We thank you for the truths that uh, we can glean from um, the Old Testament, your work in the Old Testament age. Um, and we ask, Lord, that you would impress these truths upon our hearts afresh through this message and as we ponder them in coming hours and days. If there is anyone who's listening, Lord, to my voice, who doesn't know you savingly, would you please have mercy on his or her soul and show that individual that he must trust Christ alone to save him from his sins and from hell. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's Supper is one of two holy ordinances or sacraments that our Lord Jesus instituted uh, that the church should observe uh, prior to his ascension into glory. record of the Lord's Supper is found in uh, several places, one of which is in 1 Corinthians, Paul's uh, writings. We read in 1 Corinthians starting in chapter, or in, uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this, rather, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let himself eat, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, is both a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. Uh, it is a sign in that it pictures for us uh, something of what the covenant mediator did for us in the elements themselves and their handling. The the uh, uh, red of the of the of the wine pointing to the redness of Jesus' blood and the breaking of the bread to the breaking of his body. And so it points us to that which uh, inaugurated and ratified the covenant for us, that namely the sacrifice of Christ. Um, but it also is more than just symbolism. It is uh, God is saying something. Christ is saying something. He is the head of this table. This is the Lord Jesus' table. 
And he is saying something to the worthy receiver, the one who receives uh, by faith the meal. He is saying something to you, and that what he is doing is reassuring you uh, uh, that you are his child, that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that he is your savior and your king and will not abandon you, and that he will uh, give you what you need to, uh, as you ask for it, to walk obediently with him and with increasing obedience and faith. Uh, in him. And he is confirming his covenant promises uh, to you and me. This meal is uh, not for everyone. You need to be a Christian. The Bible requires that you be a Christian. Uh, if you take, So you need to know that you are in fact a Christian. And uh, you need to be a baptized member of an evangelical church as an indication that you are in fact a a, a Christian, that some church, it doesn't have to be this one, but an evangelical church has examined your profession of faith and found it to be credible, uh, and you have received, received baptism as a result. So you need to be a baptized member of an evangelical church, professing Christian, and you must not um, be under discipline, and you must also not come if you are clinging to some sin uh, and unwilling to turn from, from that sin. He talked about eating and drinking unworthily, uh, Paul did, and the dangers of doing so. You must not uh, approach this meal and your, uh, partake of this meal lightly. Uh, you need to uh, discern uh, the body of the Lord. Uh, you need to, uh, your heart needs to be right before God. Uh, you need to be looking to Christ and Christ alone and his promises. Um, and uh, you are to be taking in faith, uh, partaking in faith. But if you are struggling with sin, do not stay away just because you may be struggling with sin. Uh, we all struggle with sin at times, pretty regularly. I think many of us do. And uh, we need to not shy away from the table just because we are struggling. Uh, if we're not struggling, if we don't care that we're in sin, that's when you must stay away. But if you uh, grieve over your sins... Grieve over the f- ways in which uh, you have uh, dishonored the Lord this past week in thought, word, or deed, uh, and wish it were otherwise, and want to uh, want to walk obediently uh, as best uh, you can by the grace of God, then absolutely come. You need uh, the encouragement, uh, the comfort that of God's forgiveness that comes as you partake of this meal. Let's now ask the Lord to uh, bless our participation in this meal. Let's pray together. O Lord, we thank you for the means of grace. We thank you for this means of grace in particular and ask that you would use it uh, to grow us in grace, that you would use, uh, use our participation in it to uh, grow our Christ-likeness in coming hours and days ahead. We ask that you would help us to feed upon Christ in our hearts by faith as we partake. We pray that you would be honored in our attitude as we partake. We ask that you would set aside these uh, elements from their common everyday use under the holy purposes for which we are about to use them. And we ask that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we are all served, and then we'll eat together. Likewise with the, the cup later.
body of Christ was broken for you, take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks in his name, as we've already done, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your abundant mercy and goodness confirmed to us in this meal. We thank you for uh, loving us in spite of our uh, weakness and sin and that you will never give up on us and you will always uh, hold us uh, close to yourself and bring us safely home to your, to a paradise. We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for the defects in our worship today, for wandering thoughts, improper thoughts. Uh, unbelief. We ask that you would help us as we go forth from this place to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling as Christians, that we would be, uh, that we would let our light so shine that uh, men might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Would you please cause us to um, live differently from the world and in such a way that the world notices and is drawn to our Savior. Uh, Please help our conversations to be um, filled with grace um, as we interact with others, both believers and unbelievers, in coming days ahead. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our service.
Just a reminder, would you please be sure and uh, sign up uh, on the conference sign-up sheet if you're going to be there uh, and indicate for lunch if you're going to be uh, uh, staying for lunch. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Forgot the end of that.